Once upon a time, a man named John Wick retired from his successful career as an assassin, but then he returned to it. And across what's now a three-film series, he's been having a heck of a week ever since. In the third film, extravagantly titled John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, Wick, played by Keanu Reeves, is on the run from foes and former friends alike. Halle Berry shows up, Angelica Houston shows up, and yes, there's still a dog. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. We're here to talk about the hyper-violent and meticulously choreographed John Wick series. Here with me and Glenn in the studio is our punching correspondent, Chris Klimek. Hey, Chris. Hi, Linda. Always a delight. And joining us from New York is Aisha Harris of the New York Times. Welcome, Aisha. Hi, Linda. It's so good to have you guys both here to talk about John Wick. Before we start, and I think everybody knows this, but these, even for action movies, punching movies, whatever are hyper-violent movies. Mm -hmm. And so go into it understanding that if there's any part of you that recoils from almost any level of violence, you should go into this conversation (laughs) knowing that. And, And also, it occurred to me as I was watching this that the fact that John Wick... Chapter 3, Parabellum, has an R rating, (laughs) is pretty good evidence that there is no such thing as an amount of violence that would get them to give you an NC-17. Yeah, you know, when I I wrote a piece for you about The Raid 2 a Mm -hmm. few years ago, and I think I I made that same observation. Like, that is a maybe even more blood-soaked movie than than this one. Yeah. So, Glenn, I want to go to you first. Mm -hmm. Um, Leading up to this, have you been a John Wick guy? You have been. You've talked about it on the Uh, show. I have, as a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah. So did I like this movie? Did I like set piece, the movie? Uh-huh. Did I like a freaking hoot, <laughs> the uh-huh. movie? Yeah, I did. It's got everything you want from a John Wick film. You got your stunts, you got your uh, action, you got your violence, super hyper violence. You got spectacle, you got dogs, as you mentioned. You got, most important thing to me, my favorite thing about this series, are the subtitles in a weird, all caps, sans serif font, that when there is a word emphasized, that word gets colored. In the first yeah. film, it was like this acid green color, and now I think it's kind of a cerulean blue. Yeah, that that is like the lettering in, in comic books, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what's going on. Now, all of us go through life knowing in our heads that... As a culture, we're getting desensitized to violence, but it's an abstract concept. Boy, if you are a sociologist out there and you want a laboratory experiment to demonstrate that phenomenon, this film, over the two hours and ten minutes, you find your body just losing its ability to react. Now, they do keep innovating and innovating. We get motorcycle chases we haven't seen before and gunplay we haven't seen before. But it's inevitable that you're going to have a ball, if you're in mindset for this film, you're going to have a ball in the first half hour. By the time two vans full of guys in riot gear show up, you kind of know what's going to happen. And it does. And they innovate that even more, right? It doesn't play out the way you think it is because there is a winking lip service to reality here. They understand this film does, that guns are things that need to be reloaded. Yeah. So there's a lot of attention Mm, paid to that. Uh, An almost fetishistic level of attention to to the reloading, to the chamber clearing, to the the hammer cocking. Well, and and one of the things when Glenn is talking about the desensitization, uh, we were at the same screening, Mm -hmm. and in that first half hour, the audience is just hooting and Mm -hmm. reacting to every really bloody, nasty thing that happens. They're going, oh, and you just hear everybody sort of, (laughs) and some of it is laughter and some Mm -hmm. of it is cringing and yelling. And by the end, I realized like the audience is just not reacting very much. And it is true that over the course of the film, 
you are desensitized to it, even though Glenn is saying he still likes it. I have acknowledged that even as a person who typically doesn't like stuff like this, I have enjoyed these movies. Uh. Aisha, what do you think? Yeah, the violence was the first thing that sort of popped into my mind when watching this movie. And I have to say, I do love this series. Ever since the first one, I've been on board. And I think it's just a great vehicle for Keanu Reeves. But the, the violence in this one... I honestly don't know why it felt even more vivid than the last two. So I actually rewatched the first two uh, with my fiance a couple weeks ago in prep for this because it had been we hadn't seen them since the movies came out. I needed some refresher. Having watched them all sort of close together, this one felt like by far the most violent out of all of them, yeah. which is saying something. Yeah, <laughs> I had that reaction too. I was watching it and thinking like, were they all like this? Because I feel like, and let me try out a theory on you and see what you think. My reaction was there are certain John Wick fight sequences that are very, they're almost funny because they're so specifically the, the, there's innovative, There's a, a right? slapsticky quality. The, the, the knife fight early in the, the film where they're oh, just yeah. grabbing the knife knives. Fight. And, the yeah, knife fight, the, a, a fight that involves a library book. Um, <laughs> yep. and, an, and an NBA player, I a, think. Yeah, yeah, a fight that involves horses. Um, <laughs> and you get these real these really kind of like almost funny, like you can't believe they're doing this. But I do feel like this one had more long sequences that turned into just a lot of close-up shots of people getting shot in the head and sort of turning into a splatter on the wall. That's the stuff where all of a sudden it feels very ordinary to me. They're still well choreographed. They're still really well shot. But in terms of like a fight scene... Was it those sequences where you kind of found yourself tuning out, Aisha? Because with me, it was. For me, I think the the one sequence where I found myself tuning out was the final one. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe it was sort of being worn down by everything before it. I was pretty much on board at the beginning with the library scene. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I think for me, when it comes to actual props even though it tends to be more violent and more gruesome than I think we have when we have guns involved. To me, that's the more interesting way. The knife fight I thought was really, really brilliantly executed where like there's knives. I don't think there might have been guns involved, but it was mostly like knives being thrown in very comical manner. Um, I guess the final sequence reminded me a little bit too much of the sequence in the second movie with Ruby Rose, who was the sort of assassin going after John Wick, where there's lots of like, it's in this museum where there's just like a hall of mirrors. And this one yes. felt very similar, that look. And so I was just like, yeah, this kind of feels like a redo of the second one. True. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Chris? Oh, boy. You know, this this is the perfect series to talk about my my sort of growing ambivalence with these kinds of... I mean, you know I love super violent action movies. I was smuggling VHS cassettes of RoboCop and Lethal Weapon and Predator under the nose of my unsuspecting parents when I was in the womb, essentially. But... Uh, I really like this film. I am, you know, less and less interested in in the the character of John Wick, and they they seem a little, you know, more and more in the third film. Even though these three films together only take place over the course of a a week or two, you know, but they're they're still spending time on on him mourning his uh, his his dead wife Bridget Moynihan, and that that's kind of getting I don't know. I'm getting more and more uncomfortable. It's been, it's been a week, buddy. The, yeah. it, it, true. Okay. No, yeah, it's, I, been, I, no, it's no, been longer than that. Right. It's okay. Been a week but in the, so the here is my yeah, yeah yeah. So here's the thing in in this film. I mean, basically, at the end of John Wick One, he has avenged his dog. He's gotten his no. He gets his car back at the beginning of John Wick Two. Yes. Sorry. And then we find out that it's actually a note from his wife that was in the dashboard that he was after, not not the car. So that that all makes sense to me. But I don't know why he fights so hard in this film to to have this death mark 
lifted since he seems to have a death wish, right? And at one point, I think at more than one point, he says, well, I have to stay alive to remember my wife. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, what? You know, so now it is easy to push that to the side and just delight right. in these these furiously inventive action sequences. But I found myself thinking, as I did 20 years ago, uh, when The Matrix came out, almost exactly 20 years ago, you know, the scene where, where uh, Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu, they walk into a building and, you know, kill 100 guards. And I remember arguing with my friends after, wait, were those real people they were killing? Were they just digital projections or like people in The Matrix? They're still real people, right? And they like when they die in The Matrix, they really die. And you know, but there was that layer yeah. of distance from like, maybe we're not just delighting in all these people getting slaughtered. Eh, these are real people. Uh, right. I mean, they are, they are assassins. Right. And, and certainly, you know, he doesn't go around starting fights. Right. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I hope this is the most evil movie that I ever love. Yeah, uh, I get it. But I, I, I am, get it. Yeah, I, I am like wringing my hands now and I'm sure I will watch it four more times. Yeah, so. you were talking, Chris, about the character of John Wick. Who's that? There's no there's no character. There's no, there's no John Wick in this movie. The only character in this movie, a real flesh and blood character, is the Continental Hotel, which is the part of this movie that I love. They know that we love this notion of a hotel that is a sacred space for these assassins where no business can get conducted. And so a lot of it is set in the hotel. And I love all of the fetishist falderall of like the analog nature of this international uh, group of assassins, <laughs> the, the super assassins, telephones that carry out their business on a Commodore PET computer with whiteboards and <laughs> ticker tape machines. Ticker the, tape machines. The production <laughs> design of that office oh where they conduct all that business and where they make the decisions about like who's excommunicado. Yep. <laughs> yep. They're dressed like Rosie the Riveter but yeah. they have all these tattoos. And they have like um, funny, yeah, and they have like interesting <laughs> uniforms and the one, I don't know, he's sort of making some of the announcements, has mm-hmm. like a really interesting kind of smudge of mascara under one eye uh-huh. and see that's where the series is getting closer and closer to the matrix right where yeah. everybody in the matrix has a really specific wardrobe and of course chad stahelski the director he was uh keanu's stunt double on uh, on matrix one he's you know he's fighting stuff, uh hugo oh, weaving wow. in the subway at the at the end of the first matrix so that, and that's that's how they they know one another yeah yeah uh there are so many little filigree moments that are just that wouldn't be in a lazier action film mm-hmm. like the fact that asia kate Dillon shows up as the adjudicator and for a while you think their whole gig in this movie is to meaningfully slide a black disc across a table at the other person. It does happen quite It happens bit. quite often. <laughs> you're like, I, I like yeah. that. I'm, I'm down with this. And at one point, a guy in a very thick accent tells John Wick, you must embrace your weakness. And you're like, what just, what was said just now? Wait, wait was they, that weakness or weakness? This is the thing. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> this is the thing. And, and the movie yeah. knows exactly what it's doing in that yeah, sense. Yeah, and it does have a tendency, I think, to drop an occasional sort of weirdly good joke not even like mm-hmm. a but like a visual joke like a or a really unexpected there's a moment that involves Asia Kate Dillon on the phone it so sort of startles the audience and they're so surprised by it and it it sort of involves this back and forth with with Ian McShane mm-hmm. where i felt the film kind of take off and i was like oh i'm here for this part involves a sort of a turn in the story where Ian McShane and Keanu Reeves change kind of their strategy toward this giant group of criminals that have been kind of over the, everybody The high forever. table. The high, ta- the high table. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that was the part where I was like, ooh, I want to watch this. And I wished that more of the movie had been that. Aisha, did you, how are you feeling about the, the character stuff? 
Yeah, I was very confused about Angelica Houston's character, and she she doesn't really have much to do here. Um, she kind of shows up for a little bit and then is no longer there. And I, I didn't fully understand their connection. To me, it didn't give any more sort of background to John Wick. Look, John Wick will always be, first and foremost, about avenging the death of a dog. The second film sort of got away from that. There's a couple mentions, and they're usually comical mentions about, like, all this for a dog? Mm -hmm, And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah. In a way, it is. Obviously, the dog is connected to the wife, but, you know, it still is, in a way, about the dog. And in this film, I appreciated that we finally got back to the dogs, and the dog had its day because there is an entire set piece with Halle Berry in which her two dogs... (laughs) Play. Mm -hmm. They play a role. (laughs) They play a role. They play a role in basically setting up each of the kills that Halle Berry's character and John Wick have. There's one moment (laughs) where a dog literally like jumps on, I think, on her like Halle Berry's knee, and then somehow like a cat (laughs) jumps five feet (laughs) onto a roof. This is the Westminster (laughs) Kennel Club dog agility competition with with guns. It's true. It's true. Yeah. What are you thinking, Glenn? This film, I tried to reconstruct it in my mind when I went home, and it was impossible because there's a risk when you it doesn't so much escalate the violence as iterate the violence, right? It just keeps kind of changing it up. uh, And it doesn't move to a climax in a real way because there's pretty much the same level of violence at the beginning and the end. But when you pile on this many set pieces, you're just kind of asserting each set piece with equal volume. So it becomes hard to kind of string it along. Like, I had completely forgotten Angelica Houston is in this movie. Like, you can just, things like that just drop out. Yeah. I will say that this film has a piece of dialogue from Keanu Reeves. It's the final line in the movie. His line is the dumbest final line and in any movie. And mm-hmm. no <laughs> other actor could make it work the way he does. <laughs> yeah. Only Keanu Reeves could make that line work to the extent that it does. Do we think that there there is a like a kind of weird topicality to this? And I and I know that I have much more ambivalence about this movie than I would, you know, were we not living in a world where mass shootings were happening everywhere right. all the time. But that's kind of the world that we live in, right? Is that violence can happen anywhere and it's entirely ungoverned by rules. So maybe that's what's sort of appealing about this movie is there is at least some kind of secret economy of assassins, you know, right. where they don't kill innocent people, they just kill each other. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what the series is doing very carefully to say. There is this closed off little uh, arena that where this violence happens to each other. You don't have to worry about it. No innocents are hurt. Quote, unquote, innocents are hurt. That's, that's how it wants us to uh, encapsulate, to box off the violence in this film and, and keep it in a nice, tidy, safe story time place. Yeah. Uh, we want to know what you think of John Wick. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town, or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. Support for NPR and the following message come from Luminary, the only place you can listen to the new podcast Anthem from John Cameron Mitchell and Brian Weller. Anthem is a podcast musical with 31 original songs delivered by 40 actors, including Tony Award winners Glenn Close and Patti LuPone. Listen to Anthem and other original podcasts only on Luminary. 
Visit luminary.link slash happy hour for your first two months of Luminary's premium content free. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? Bonding is a new seven-episode series on Netflix. Each episode's about 15, 20 minutes long. It's written and directed by writer Doyle, and it's based on his experience. It's a comedy about uh, a young, struggling, financially gay man in New York City who gets a job as the assistant to a dominatrix, a female dominatrix. So the gay guy's played by Brendan Scannell, who's great, and the dominatrix is played by Zoe Levin, who is really good, playing a character who is not likable, but is, is yet empathetic. So the setup leads you to think, okay, so this is going to be kink shame the show. This whole series, is, we're going to be laughing at how freaky these clients are, and there's an element to that. But the real thing about the show is the relationship between the two leads, which is, over the course of a very short time, becomes remarkably layered and nuanced and real and kind of sweet. Also, Darcy Carden shows up mm. for a little bit, and I've gone back to watch her scenes many times. There's a scene between her and Brendan Scannell, which is just, she just knocks it out of the park. So, one warning. The show doesn't entirely embrace the provably false notion that people are sex workers because there's some kind of sexual trauma in their past. Doesn't embrace that. Doesn't entirely reject it mm-hmm. either. But if you're if you're up for it, it's, it's a very, you know, sexy, kinky show. But it's a lot of fun. It's called Bonding, and it's on Netflix. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Aisha Harris, what is making you happy this week? I'm going to recommend The Perfection, which is a... It is a movie that if you go into it, the less you know, the better, because it does not go where you think it's going to go. But uh, for a little bit of a setup, this movie is directed by Richard Shepard, and it stars Allison Williams and Logan Browning, who you may know from the TV show Dear White People. And... Alison Williams plays a woman who was once a cello prodigy, child prodigy, who had to give it up in order to take care of her sick mother. So years later, she realizes that her her mentor and the person who sort of trained her and and nurtured her career um, before it was derailed has now taken on a new prodigy, and that's played by Logan Browning. And they have a interesting connection that leads to lots of really crazy, bizarre, just psychological thriller type things happening. It's Allison Williams kind of playing the role that she played in Get Out in a way, um, which is kind of perfect. This is my favorite version of Allison Williams. And um, yeah, it's going to be something that people talk about, especially the final shot. So I highly recommend it. It will be on Netflix next week, uh, May 24th. And and it's called The Perfection. And also, uh, as Linda mentioned earlier, when it comes to violence, if you don't like violence or if you you get easily grossed out by things, you might want to just be warned about that. Ah, uh, yes. OK. Thank you very much, Aisha Harris. Chris Klimek, what is making you happy this week, friend? Well, uh, I brought up The Matrix earlier, one of about 20 movies from the year 1999 that has cast a long shadow over the the decades that have followed it. That is the thesis of Brian Raftery, not Rafferty's new book, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Just because I'm mad that I didn't write this book myself mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to enthusiastically endorse it. Some access to the the filmmakers, the people who made things like The Blair Witch Project and uh, uh, The Sixth Sense and Fight Club and The Insider and American Beauty and all these, you know, very, very dense films from from that era. He takes it kind of by, by season, by when they came out. So the book starts with The Blair Witch Project and ends with uh, 
Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Just a really good work of scholarship. There is some filmmaker interviews in, in this that are, you know, worked into the, the text. But um, I, I think the real attraction is not so much his access, but his insight into, you know, just, just how all these things sort of coincided in this one year to result in a, a an unusual quantity of original, risky, idea-filled films coming from major studios in a way that they they just don't now, you know? So, I mean, this is partially a predictable lamentation of how all this imagination and creativity has migrated to streaming and, and television, you know, in the in the 20 years since then. But uh, I really, really love this book. The title, once again, is Best Movie Year Ever by Brian Raftery. Thank you very much, Chris Klimek. Primarily what is making me happy this week is the series finale of Veep which we talked about way back when it was a new show, but it wrapped up its run as we taped this this last weekend on HBO. It is really hard to land a series that's been on for a long time, that's won a lot of awards, that has this very indelible Julia Louis-Dreyfus performance at its center. They had a, a long hiatus. They had, you know, it's one of those shows that has not run kind of consistently and forever since it's been on. So it goes and comes and goes and comes. The finale of this, for me, really reminded me both of how much I appreciate the fact, it sounds ironic, but it reminded me how much I appreciate the fact that you don't actually have to have seen every single episode of this show because it has a circular nature where these people are just grinding through many of the same patterns over and over again. I have missed occasional episodes of it, but the finale is so true for me to who these are awful people are and they're right up until the very end I thought maybe there was going to be a little tiny like something you wouldn't expect they just doubled down on everything in the finale so good loved it series finale of Veep congratulations guys you did a good job and that is what is making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. You can find Chris at C.T. Klimek and Aisha at Crafting My Style. You can find our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band Hello Come In provides the music you're bobbing your head to right now. So thanks to you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. If you have a second and you're so inclined, do subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. And we will see you all back here on Monday morning when we will be wrapping up the final season of Game of Thrones. See you then. A lot of people are excited that I mentioned on the air yesterday that I'll be on fresh air with Terry Gross on NPR. It happened. I finally got to interview Howard Stern. There was so much to talk about. It's a two-parter. You can listen on the Fresh Air podcast.